Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. Today we're talking about the uh, Ballad of Peckham Rye. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, Lori, this is, uh, this is a weird little book. This is our fourth Muriel Spark. Am I counting right? Yeah, it's the fourth one. Yes. And there's a strangeness, I think, to all of the books that we've read so far. But maybe this one is just even the weirdest to date. There's a lot of things that are a little bit unique about it, I thought. Um, it's pretty much a blue collar book. You know, most of the characters work in a textile factory. You get some office workers in the textile factory, but you know, those folks probably were on the shop floor before they got, you know, promoted. The dialogue is really awesome. And I don't know how much I can, I can talk to 1958, 1960 shop floor speak, but it felt really authentic to me, the way that they were interacting and and talking. And Again, we've got this like little community of people that are connected in lots of weird and interchangeable ways. Um, some of the connections come up or become more evident as you get further into the book. But I don't know. Where do you want to start with this one? I feel like I ask you that every every time, but not that this book is at all inapproachable. This is just like a wildly fun book. I guess maybe start with the main protagonist here, a, a guy named variously um, Dougal Douglas or Douglas Dougal or last name Dougal Dash Douglas. Yeah, uh, Dougal is, I mean, how to describe this guy, uh, basically a chaos agent. Um, he drops into the narrative, uh, drops into this town. Um, so Peckham is a working class uh, area in London. I believe it still is uh, fairly working class to this day, um, Southeast London. And like you said, uh, it's mostly taking place among the, the workers at a textile factory. And Dougal is, well, we can get into whether, like how legitimate his bona fides are, but Dougal is a university man that's hired by the upper management to try and basically like affect the moral character of the workers. But from the first moment we meet him, like properly meet him, he's bizarre. Like he's, he's talking to everyone in these very, this very odd manner. He has these re, you know, real, like almost flights of fancy in the middle of conversations. He'll start talking about something completely different. And this is in a professional setting and it's somehow it's having the, the desired effect on the person he's speaking to. Uh, he's constantly altering his uh, pose and his facial expressions um, to imitate or personify another character, a archetype, which has the desired effect of causing someone either riotous laughter or um, them to really listen even harder to what he has to say. He's a really, really weird character, um, but so, so much fun, um, even though he he wreaks a lot of ruin. Um, he definitely um, does a number on uh, the factory and the community of people that he he comes into contact with. 
I think though it's worth uh, maybe kicking off a little bit with a, a kind of clever structural thing that Spark does with this novel um, because it actually begins at the end. Uh, it opens with uh, Dixie and Humphrey, who we end up spending a lot of time with, uh, both of them throughout the rest of the novel, um, on their wedding day and going to the altar and Humphrey being asked if he'll take Dixie as his wife and him saying, um, you know, to be quite frank, I think not. And then walking away. And then it just sort of covers what happens in like the intervening. And, and frankly, frankly, it doesn't even open with that. It opens after that took place with Humphrey coming back to talk to Dixie a couple weeks after the fact and him being turned away at the door and then getting into a fight with a guy named Trevor who, feature, who features very largely in the rest of the novel. But that opening chapter wraps with everyone kind of remarking on how it was all Dougal Douglas's fault. And we're all very glad to see the back of him. And some people say he just left. Some people say he got run off. And then we basically go back a few months in time to Dougal Douglas's introduction to this community, his hiring, um, his taking up rooms in the uh, same, I mean, I, I guess it's a similar setup um, to uh, Caroline in um, The Comforters, where it's like a, a multi-flat, although this is much more of like single rooms, I think. I, th I got the sense it was like a boarding house. Yes, yes. Sorry, that was the exact word, <laughs> exact phrase I was looking for um, and was failing to find. Um, the same boarding house that um, Humphrey lives in. Yeah, so uh, Dougal is Scottish. He has a diploma from the University of Edinburgh, which... I don't know. By the time this novel's over with, I kind of wonder how legitimate that uh, <laughs> that there's nothing to ever say that it is illegitimate other than the fact that you should not trust a single thing that Dougal Douglas ever pre presents to you or you know, represents as as a truth, because I don't even know if he knows what the truth is half the time. Again, he's hired um, by the upper management because there is high absenteeism um, and they are trying to. They're trying to be as efficient and productive as possible at this uh, factory. I, I guess just on that point, um, I was I was kind of intrigued by this notion. Apparently, there's a, a bit of a reference to like a industry wide survey that's gone out or something. So all of the upper management of these textile factories have gotten the recommendation that they need to hire what they refer to as an arts man. <laughs> you know, what is an arts man? Well, he's not the personnel manager um, because we have, we've got one of those that Dougal Douglas kind of um, does a number on, but he's in HR, but I guess you would say that he's kind of like employee relations maybe is something we would call him like that. I mean, I feel like he's like the chief innovation officer, one of those new titles that's come up over the last however many years to like, you're just supposed to have the big thoughts that then help chart the course of the company. Or um, do you remember when, like, I think it was like eight years ago, design thinking became all the rage in corporate America where we're going to, we have a very specific way of developing our thought processes that, I mean, and it just, I don't know. I, as a practice, I'm sure it has its its merits, um, but it also just very much sounds like uh, a system to like keep track of what people think. I don't know. Consultants speak. Um, but Mr. Douglas uh, presents himself as eminently qualified to fill this position. And in fact, he does fill this position for three factories, 
<laughs> um, in the town. And those aren't the only salaries that he's drawing down. But he makes it very clear to all of his employers that this position requires a lot of independent research on his part. So basically, he's not working at all. He's pretending to work. But just when people start to like raise an eyebrow and like, where is he? What's he What's he doing? What's he been up to? I haven't seen him for a while. Is he just goofing off? I need a report on this or a report on that. He'll come waltzing into their office and give them every confidence that he's like, he's on it and, you know, he, he knows what he's doing and he makes these pronouncements and these ridiculous recommendations. I don't know that he, he gives this recommendation to upper management, but he's very um, happy and free in giving it to the floor workers at the factory that you should just take every Monday off. Even though he knows that he's being hired to handle uh, first and foremost, this problem of absenteeism um, at the factory, he just kind of thinks that if you're if you're a little bit tired, if you're worn out, if you don't feel like it, or if you just need you know like a change of change of air, just take Mondays off. Don't come into work at all on Mondays, which of course you know is preposterous. But but people follow his advice and and do it, and he never seems to get in trouble for giving that advice. There's almost a, a viral quality to the advice he gives, like and 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 in some ways, I think that also reflects how information moves within this community because uh, there's a scene very early on where um, Dougal is uh, crying in the canteen at the factory and then he's later mocked for it uh, at a pub by someone who was not there to witness it like that very same night. So like, you know, word of mouth is certainly <laughs> certainly one of the driving forces uh, in this in this uh, in this area. I really like the idea of uh, Dougal Douglas as like a Bain Capital or a, a McKinsey, um, sweep like swooping in and just totally ripping a business apart for whatever, for whatever ends there there might be in in, in that in that respect. And the ends cer- certainly seem to be uh, for the enrichment um, as much as he can of uh, of himself of Dougal Douglas. But, but that's what's so enigmatic about this book and this character because you like him. He's this happy-go-lucky. He seems to genuinely care about some of the characters that he encounters. Um, he becomes friends with Humphrey. Humphrey's fiance Dixie does not like him because she thinks he's, you know, a fraud. And but one of the things that's a little bit hard to get around is: is this guy just being intentionally malicious? Is he being just like? himself and people are are buying into the bullshit that he's selling because it, it's it's a little hard to know other than like doing no work making money and having a good time what his motivation is for any of this stuff that he does or that happens to some of the characters he describes the work he does as human research um and that phrase crops up quite a bit throughout the uh, throughout the novel, especially in one scene towards the end where he's talking to uh, Nellie Mahone, uh, who's Irish and basically the the local bag lady, local uh, crazy who's walking around speaking like verses of the Bible and the like. Their interaction and the relationship that they develop 
is really interesting um, as they're both not English. They both seem to see and understand the people around them and the social structures around them in a way that no one else is really, you know, perking their head up to. I mean, it's it's very helpful at times to um, be <laughs> ignored if what you're trying to do is like make your way through the world uh, in a world that doesn't much care for you, which it seems is part of what Nellie is doing at this stage of her life. But yeah, I don't know that Duggle necessarily does have an ultimate aim. I mean, I did say it's like for his own enrichment. And I think that's true. I mean, he's looking to make money and to be, to be able to like make his way through the world, but it almost feels much more like a making his way through the world. It doesn't feel like, I'm aiming to be this kind of wealthy or accomplish this sort of thing. I mean, he suggests that he has certain demonic qualities to him. Um, he invites folks to touch his forehead to um, feel where the horns that he was born with um, used to be. And he represents uh, to different folks that he had, he had them removed via surgery. They got knocked off of him during a childhood fight, all these things. But to go along with that, he does seem to understand and play the people that he talks to as if he has greater understanding of who they are than he should. I mean, unless he, unless he, before he took this position at the factory, had done a deep dive into the area, and there's nothing to suggest that he had, and how could he have, he knows entirely too much about a lot of the folks that he's playing, and, and it seems at times playing with. Uh, Mr. Drews in particular, who's the one that hires him at the first factory. I mean, Duggle practically breaks the man down to his most like atomic, atomic levels of personality uh, in I, at times a very funny way. And at other times it almost feels cruel what, what he's doing to this guy. Yeah, maybe I have a too generous view of, and I don't know whether to pronounce it Duggle or Dougal, but... Um, I felt that he genuinely cares about people. He really enjoys talking to people and talking to people kind of like in a, in an authentic and, and what seems like he, he, he has an ability to encourage people to open up and be very honest. And so the fact that he knows a lot of stuff that you wouldn't think you would ordinarily know, I guess I didn't see that as as all that weird because I could see, I mean, he's nosy and he, you know, he likes to go to the pub and he likes to drink a lot and he likes to get people to drink with him and open up and talk about their relationships and everything that's going on in their lives. And people, people are quite frank with him in a way that I think is kind of unusual for 1960s England. Um, even with your best buddies to talk about, some of the things that they talk about with him. I didn't see him though, like as a talented Mr. Ripley, he, he doesn't seem malign or malicious to me now. And I just kind of thought that the devil thing was just some kind of goofing off joke that he liked to, he liked to do because he thought it was, he was, you know, entertaining and, but it sounds like you think he might've actually had some supernatural powers. I don't know if he had supernatural powers. I mean, I think he also could just be a very good con man doing cold reads, you know, like I, I, there, there could be that element of it too. I think though that in his human research, he, 
he does identify elements of what's going on with the workers at the factory and factories and the people living in Peckham, that there are all these sort of forces at play, um, this desire for this desire for a traditional lifestyle, this desire for fun, um, this sense of morality and immorality. I mean, all of which is true in almost any circumstance, but there is an element of striving among the p- young people. And it's all mostly young people that that he's interacting with that are working at this at this textile um, place, uh, other than a couple, couple folks. But like Dixie, for instance, is 17. Um, Humphrey is in his early 20s. Trevor is about the same age. And then there's a gap to... Miss um, Coverdale? Yes, uh, who's 37. And then another gap to Mr. Druce. Although I would, it's a good question. How old is Dixie's mother, uh, Mavis? Um, I wonder if this novel is in some ways a, or could be read as a, a social commentary, really kind of digging in on, on an almost Dickensian level, but getting in fast, getting in hard and then getting out again and not spending, you know, 500 pages in a, in a serialized format to 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 dig into these various people's lives. One of the things I'm really enjoying about this journey through uh Meryl Sparks' work is because I haven't had a ton of time to just, you know, absorb all of it and think through it, um, things are occurring as we're as we're talking, which I hope is not a frustration for the listener. I hope you're enjoying the journey right along with us. But th- there's such rich novels and and frankly, my brain is kind of structured to create a project or find a larger uh, schematic to an author's work, whether it's there or not. Um, so that's part of what's what, what's skipping through my head at the moment, I suppose, is how much of this is how much of this is a character study, a social a, a social commentary, and how much of it is a fun novel that she created an absolutely frantic, yeah, fr- frantic, diabolical character who is just dancing his way through this community. I mean, it is called the Ballad of Peckham Rye. A ballad is, does have very specific connotations to it. And throughout this novel, um, he breaks into dance, Duggle. I mean, he he's constantly dancing in the boarding house. He dances at a nightclub and causes, like, gets kicked out of it. Doing Highlander dances. Doing Highlander dances, then doing... Then doing, you know, a, a, what was described as a as a Zulu dance. Then um, putting, like, basically going through a pantomime of like just various stereotypes, much to most of the other dancers' like absolute enjoyment. And the the guy that owned the place didn't seem to hate it, but was much more like, "You're gonna just screw up my dance floor if you keep doing that." So I need you to go. Um, plus, he starts a fight. He starts a lot of fights. But yeah, Douglas dancing throughout this entire thing. And and if you you could even read his interactions with other people that way too, that he's putting them, he's putting them through the paces. He's changing the tempo. Um, he's deliberately wrong footing them so that he can better take the lead. I, it, as I beat that metaphor to death. One, one of the curious things that happens as you, as you've already um, um, talked a little bit about Tom is that early on um, Dougal is caught publicly sobbing and he says it's because his gal Ginny is is gonna get married to, to someone else. He, she doesn't want to, anything to do with him anymore. And 
And this was, this is like a very weird thing, right? I mean, I think it's even like at the, at the company canteen. So he's like, he's like crying in front of his coworkers. He's like in management and, but you know, everyone tries to be for the most part, the women, especially, you know, sympathetic and are very touched by his raw show of emotion. But then he also has the, the propensity to make everyone else around him cry as well. (laughs) Um, No matter what their age, their position in life, um, people just basically like break down sobbing. And it's, it's, it's almost like ridiculous. Like he hardly has to do anything and they'll just start like pouring, pouring out to him about, you know, how desperate they are because of a situation that they're in and how their life life is, is horrible and they don't know what to do. And, and, you know, and he, in some respects is, is sympathetic. Other times he just like gives off trite advice that sometimes doesn't even make any sense what he's telling them to do about their problems. But um, yeah, there's this, there's this motif going on about like people just breaking down in public in front of other people, you know, and you think about British society as this, you know, very stiff upper lip. And I would imagine, especially at the time that this book was published. And I don't know, it's, I would have to think that if I were living in London, you know, and then pick this up at my, at the Bloomsbury or, you know, London Review of Books bookstore, I would be thinking like, oh my God, these people are acting so weird in this book. Well, see, I I wonder about that too, though, because even in that scene, the canteen, there's this real push pull between, I mean, Miss Coverdale is the one that comes across um, uh, Duggle sobbing. And I think it was uh, four or five women working there, but in various positions, attempting to comfort him in some manner. Um, and Coverdale is, you know, is the head of the the typist pool. Um, and so she has a certain level of authority, but she's getting a lot of backtalk and she's getting a lot of pushback from um, some of the younger women. And when this is, I mean, this is taking place, we, she's said it because of um, Dixie being 17. And we know that her mother was a GI bride. Um, she got married to a U.S. serviceman, went over to the States and then came back because the marriage fell apart, but came back pregnant, um, had Dixie remarried to a, what seems like a very stable, nice guy in Arthur Crew, um, with quite the lout of a, uh, of a son. So, but we know that's like 19, like you said, 1959, 1960. And there really does seem to be this, this change happening within the social structure. I mean, even in the one nightclub where he um, gets kicked out of for the dancing that he's doing, there are West Indians and Africans in in the audience, like identified as such, which we hear from older folks in, in the novel as being like, how can there be black people that live in Peckham? Isn't this ridiculous? I mean, so there is this sort of social change that seems to be taking place. Um, and then you have the character of Beauty, who is, I mean, her name is literally Beauty in this novel. She's uh, Trevor's girlfriend, sort of, it seems, or at the very least is going with him at the moment. And Duggle is clearly making pains both to both to tweak Trevor by um, pursuing Beauty, um, but also seems interested in her. But she sounds, from her description, like, you know, Ahmad. 
like she sounds like what you're going to see in or what I saw in um watching a, like a hard day's night the movie as my parents made us watch that all the time and I say made us it's a great movie but like she sounds like what you're about to see in you know swinging 60s London I, I think I think that's something that Sparks really good at and something that she's you know kind of picking at is how much the world of London of of Britain is changing in this time and the tension between the the youth and the previous generation and the desire for having fun versus you know having a stable life which very much comes uh comes out in Dixie and Humphrey's relationship they are engaged to be married and Humphrey is constantly complaining to um Dougal that they're not having any fun, uh, Humphrey and Dixie, because Dixie is working all the time because she only wants to get married when she has a certain amount of money so she can make the right kind of down payment on her on the bungalow that they want. And she wants it to look like this and she wants this. So she's working all the time and she's losing her sex because <laughs> she's working so much and she's so tired. Uh, and you know, Humphrey's, in some respects, griping because he feels, it, it seems, because it, he feels that She's undervaluing the money he makes as a uh, union electrician. But yeah, it also is just like, again, it, it just feels like, you know, Humphrey wants to be married to Dixie, but doesn't, but all, even though the novel opens with him standing her up at the altar, but he also wants to have fun at the time. And that seems to be a trade-off that Dixie is unwilling to make at that point. So yeah, it's just some really interesting tensions that she's messing around with. And then you have Dougal, who is encouraging absenteeism, who's basically telling everyone, if you hit your job, just go do something else. Like his his attitude is one very much of like almost anarchy. Like, you know, th this is the land of do as you please, as far as he's concerned. And because of his various gifts and abilities to talk to people and convince them of whatever he, he needs to convince them of, for him, it very much that very much does seem to be the case, too. People do generally like him. Dixie's an exception. Trevor is definitely an exception. And you get a little bit of um, some vibes regarding Trevor's presumption that this Dougal guy is, or he's he's up to, Dougal, Dougal, he's up to something, something sinister. There's, there's something that, that's going on here that is, isn't apparent. He's, you know, everyone likes him. He seems so nice. He's moving up in the world and, you know, he's doing very well, but he's a newcomer to this town. And so Trevor is very suspicious of him. Part of his suspicion is because he keeps seeing Dougal going into the police station and talking to the police about some excavation work that's going on. And I was curious, Tom, to get your opinion about what that excavation work, what meaning you think it holds for, for the novel and what Spark is trying to do. We find there are nuns buried where they're excavating. And it, I guess it turns out that, that Dougal is just fascinated by this stuff, but he does, he sure doesn't, mind that people have the impression that he's very good friends with the cops that maybe he's working for or with the cops because it kind of helps him kind of be this this man of mystery 
the the nun tunnel um nun head it's really weird it's just like this really strange thing thrown thrown in i mean which is i don't know probably a, a redundant thing to say when there are so, so many strange things happening in this in this novel and Dougal is such a strange character Dougal is perfectly happy for people to think and uses it to his advantage at one point because i think we should get in a little bit more into what trevor's up to but he has presented himself to the police as a, a bit of an archaeologist. And within the grounds of the station, um, they are digging out a tunnel. And it seems like the tunnel is to, supposed to like cut through an area and connect two spots. But in the process, they find uh, the skeletons of nuns. I was curious, so I did a quick search on that. And it, it may not be a real thing. Um, it has a bit of a local legend component to it that... Uh, that there was a tunnel that nuns used um, during the time of Henry VIII to escape from their convent, that this is that tunnel. Um, there is a actual pub called the Nunhead nearby. But, and I mean, I didn't do a deep dive or anything, but it, it seems like this is a bit of a local legend that maybe Spark wove into her story um, to, I don't know, give eventually give give Dougal a bit of an escape plan, give him a way to interact with the police um, such that he can push other people off his back for a period of time. But it's it would be one of the few instances of uh, Catholicism in this novel, right? Um, I don't think that it's the case that you could say that the wedding at the beginning was definitively a Catholic one. It was simply it was a Christian one, certainly, but it did not necessarily have to be Catholic. And there really isn't much other discussion. I mean, other than Dougal's representation or talking to people about how he's an exorcist of lives and, you know, suggesting that he may be demonic, uh, either as a gag or as a way to, uh, you know, wrongfoot someone. There isn't like spiritualism in this one, the same way that there was in The Comforters and Robinson um, or even in a bit in Memento Mori. I mean, this is... This is in some ways the least religious of the novels. No, I mean, not even in some ways. This is the least religious of the novels that we've read of hers so far. But yeah, the 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 nun tunnel, which is just a really great thing to say, and maybe that's why she created it, was so people could think about a nun tunnel. It's just a really, it's just another really odd thing thrown in there that almost enlarges what a strange figure Dougal is. And helps to fill in what he does with his days when he's not working nine to five thirty at the factory on a regular basis. So what do you think is motivating the young man, Trevor, the electrician who is kind of Humphrey's friend, I guess. I mean, he ends up being the best man at, at Humphrey and Dixie's wedding. Which is so weird, right? <laughs> I know. The, the way that Humphrey comes across versus the way Trevor comes across. And even in like their early interactions, they don't seem friendly, like the early interactions we read, they don't seem friendly at all. And yet we're told, we know from the opening of the novel that they, that Trevor was the best man. And about two thirds of the way through, Dixie says to Dougal that Trevor is going to be Humphrey's best man. And you're like, wait, wh why? Like, so Trevor is a, works, I think, as a um, freezer technician. That's clearly his day job. However, it's also established about halfway through that he's running a small gang of sorts. He almost has like the the East End mobster feel to him. And one of his gang is is Dixie's uh, young brother, who's I think thirteen. Yeah, thirteen year old Leslie Crew, her stepbrother, and then there's also uh, Collie Gould, 
who is 16 or so. Um, no, 17, because he missed out on national service uh, because he's got bad lungs. Um, nonetheless, they all smoke. I mean, everyone in this novel is smoking like chimneys. I think even beyond whatever small time criminal activities Trevor's getting up to, I, I just get the feeling that he doesn't like the upset that Duggle represents. He seems to pick up on the fact that Duggle is a intrusive force, that he's something that's going to disrupt this community, um, setting aside the fact that like he's in some ways going after beauty, sort of, not really, that if he is friends with Humphrey, um, Duggle's displaced him uh, quite a bit. Setting all that aside, it just feels like Trevor takes one look at this guy and is like, no, you don't fit here. And I like how here works or I understand how here works. And now there's something else happening. Yeah. And I think that he doesn't like the fact that Duggle goes around town and is kind of a backslapper and, you know, drinks with the people in the pubs and people generally like him. And and so, yeah, I think there's an element of, of jealousy there. There's some outrageously funny things in this novel, uh, one of which is that Miss Coverdale, the um, the head of the the um, the typist at the factory, Duggle tells her early on that she looks like an okapi, this African antelope slash giraffe like animal. And there's various references to that throughout the book. That was that was chuckle out loud worthy for me. Another is, you know, Duggle is is smitten, I guess it's fair to say, with with Ginny. But he can't he can't be with Ginny right now because Ginny isn't in good health. And Duggle will say at the drop of a, a hat that he has a fatal flaw. And that fatal flaw is that he is repelled by illness. So he's left to try to communicate with Ginny by phone. She lives on the other side of, of the, the Thames um, in London. But every time he calls her, she can't talk because she's got something on the stove. And that just like is repeated over and over and over again. She always has something on the stove. And then you've got Miss Fern, um, the the landlady at the boarding house and she's kind of a, a closet drinker. She tries to pretend to be all prim, but she knows everything that's going on in the boarding house. Who's going to visit Duggle Humphrey lives in the same boarding house and, and Duggle and she have many evenings sitting in the kitchen, just um, drinking gin. And she's a funny character as well. So this might be one of, the funniest of the books, I guess, of the four we've read so far. I mean, they're all, they all have a very wry sense of humor to them. No pun intended since this is the battle of Peckham Rye. But, but this one, I, I felt myself, found myself laughing out loud more at this one than, than the other three that we've read so far. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's an evening early in the novel where uh, Duggle is going, um, going to sleep. And uh, he hears a very strange noise coming through his cupboard. And he, <laughs> he figures, well, a couple things happen. He hears someone come in downstairs and um, recognizes uh, that it's Humphrey. Humphrey's being very slow on the stairs and can't figure out why. Like he 
he sounds heavier. And then there's this really strange noise coming from um, Duggle's uh, uh, cupboard, which he then figures out is the other side of the wall is Humphrey's room and his cupboard. And sometimes the way Spark writes, she's not really letting you know what's happening until a couple pages later where it, like the characters explain it. Like, it, And it's such a remarkable thing about her writing. She so rarely is intervening in that regard. She lets the dialogue figure it, like help you figure it out. But in this situation, you know that um, Humphrey has Dixie in his room and they're having sex in the cupboard. And when um, <laughs> Dougal complains of it, of it to the landlady and then later has um, Humphrey back in his room and um, starts making a, a noise and uh, is like, why did you have to carry her up the stairs? Why did you have to have sex in the cupboard? And Humphrey like explains, well, one time she went up the stairs in her stocking feet and we almost got caught. And one time we were in bed together and we almost got caught. And so this is the only way we can have sex. And he goes, on cold nights, um, this is the only way we can have sex. Because the only time they get to really go out together is on Saturdays. But the, for the rest of their conversation, periodically Duggle just uh, bounces on the bed and makes the exact same sound that the cupboard made at Humphrey just to kind of mess with him a bit. Is it's delightful. It's so funny, but it's also such a, it's such a natural joshing between two friends, you know, uh, of like, just really like knitting at that one thing that like, okay, I get it. It's funny. Could you leave off? Okay. I get it. It's funny. Could you leave off? Yeah. I mean, and then, and in that, those scenes, absolutely. I mean, even in the scenes where he's being kind of a, a, a bit of a shady prick, Duggle's delightful. Like he's, he's a, charismatic as hell character i guess i kind of wonder how um how kind he ultimately is to to the folks around him because uh, a lot of lives get very much upended by by his presence yeah i don't know whether we want to give any of the the denouement of the novel away but you know i've got a list here of people that end up in a very bad way by the by the time Dougal leaves town. I, I think we should a hundred percent go into that. Cause I think it's, I think it also kind of jives with a lot of the other things you've been talking about, but for those who are going, haven't read it yet, plan to read it. Don't want the spoilers, what have you. Here's your warning. You got five, four, three, two, one, go for it, Lori. Okay. Mr. Whedon, the personnel manager at the first uh, company, that Duggle um, is employed by, um, and as we said, he's employed by three by the end of the, the book. And then we also have to talk about Cheese, the biography of the actress that he's writing. But, um, okay, Mr. Whedon has a nervous breakdown. Miss Fern has a very, like, perhaps life-ending stroke. We don't know whether she dies or not. The landlady. Miss Coverdale I don't know if we've mentioned, but is having an affair with Mr. Druce, who's the head guy at the company, at the, at the factory. And Mr. Druce is married and he comes by Miss Coverdale's house one evening and starts kind of jealously asking her about Duggle and it becomes a very heated thing. And he kills her. That was very sudden and surprising to me i think he what does he do stab her five times or something and she dies nine times with a corkscrew <laughs> to the neck the neck which is what um made 
Dougal say that she looked like an okapi because an okapi <laughs> is an antelope that wants to be a giraffe, so stretches out its neck. And that neck that's so remarked upon is what is brutally stabbed and leads to, to her death. Yeah, so Mr. Drews goes to jail, probably for the rest of his life. Of course, we know that Dixie gets left at the altar, but then we also know that she ultimately does end up getting married. Yeah, but there are lots of bad things that happen to these to these characters. But let's let's talk about the character who's kind of in the background the whole time, but referred to as Cheese. And Trevor picks up some notebooks, well, steals some notebooks from Douglas' room and sees references to Cheese and some other cryptic notes. And, you know, he thinks this is all like code words um, for this cabal that um, Douglas is involved with, that the cops are in on as well. But she's, I guess, is a washed up actress before Douglas even came to Peckham Rye, had hired him somehow, some way to ghostwrite her memoir. And so so he he is doing so but he's doing so in a really crazy way because he's basically um, taking things that are happening to him and the people around him in Peckham Rye and just transplanting those on the biography of this actress. And when he talks to her by phone, she's saying, you know, well, I don't know. That doesn't, I don't know how that's going to sound because that's not at all accurate, you know? And do you really think we should say this? And, and they just, um, she eventually like just keeps buying into this crazy stuff that he's writing for her as, as her life story when none of it happened. When she does finally buy into it, they're on the phone. And up to this point, every time Cheeseman is called and they've chatted, as you said, she's giving this feedback of, well, that didn't really happen. But initially she says, that never happened. I don't think we should do that. The next time they speak, she goes, well, how did you know that I actually grew up in Peckham? Um, as if he's uncovered something interesting. And then the last time they speak, she's thrilled with everything. She thinks this is wonderful. This is going to be such a good thing. And Doug, at that point, is planning on leaving. And he uses the same excuse that Ginny always used to try and get off the phone saying, I've got some soup on, on the stove. I have to go. So when someone's finally bought hook, line, and sinker, everything that he's trying to sell, he's done. He doesn't care anymore. He's ready to move on as if, as if, frankly, as if the dance is coming to an end and he'd rather, he'd rather decamp and find a new, a new spot at which to, to do his thing. I think another, another thing to say about Mr. Drews, though, is that there's a very strong suggestion that uh, he has been engaging in illegal practices and that Trevor works for him, which is what he says to uh, Ms. Coverdale before murdering her, that Trevor Wilmass is under my, uh, under my direction. This man who seemed very much under Douglas' spell and all over the place and distracted and... Sobbing sobbing and overwhelmed and in this loveless marriage where he hasn't spoken to his wife in five years, right before he murders his underling and lover, suddenly sounds like a mob boss. Uh, The the shift is really dramatic. And I don't know, I couldn't quite tell if that that was him becoming increasingly jealous, him throwing in his lot with Trevor to try and remove Duggle because he recognizes what Duggle is or what Douglas is doing to him, or or maybe it's easiest to read it very plainly that 
yeah, he has been crooked this whole time. And maybe Dougal was working on him, but at the end of the day, he he doesn't want someone disrupting things as much as Dougal has ended up doing. I'm not sure. It was a weird note, but I thought worth, yeah, curious what you thought about that. Yeah, he does kind of, because he, he does come across as very pathetic for most of the novel. And then I don't know whether or not Trevor convinces him or he's already like suspecting Dougal of some kind of nefariousness, but he kind of buy, buys into like the, I, I think in fact, there's like a, a story going around or maybe Mr. Drews makes is the one that, that is the source of it, that, that Dougal's working with the cops to kind of find corruption in the factories or some type, types of abuses. So that's the story that Dougal um, gives to Nellie to relay back to Trevor. So when Trevor and his gang are, they're trying to figure out what Dougal is doing, but they initially suspect him of running a racket and they, they assume that it's uh, a sex racket. So it seems like they're trying to figure out what this guy is up to such that they can take over whatever he's, whatever criminal activity he's engaged with and then run him, run him out, what, what have you, after they absorb it. They question Nellie to try and get information from her. And th that's when Douglas uses his cover of the uh, police station um, to suggest that he's actually working with them, like you said, to you know, to ferret out corruption. And if Trevor is in fact working for Druce and Druce is in fact corrupt, that would not be very good information for, for Druce to receive. And they assume that Coverdale is typing up all of his, uh, his narc sheets or something along those lines, uh, his reports back to, back to the police, which is part, I think, of why Druce ends up murdering her is that he's enraged that this person who's supposed to be his is now actually working against him and, and so on. The scene with, with him dictating the book or part of the book, a chapter of the book to Coverdale to type is hilarious because Trevor, as part of the stuff that he steals as a notebook, and there's all these kind of like stock phrases that apparently <laughs> Douglas <laughs> has heard someone say around town. And he's like, ah, I like the sound of that. That would, that would work well in the book. One of which is, I became the proud owner of a bicycle, <laughs> which, which is just so inane that it's it's just kind of hilarious. But I, I think that you're onto something, Tom, because you said that you think that that once once people like Cheeseman just kind of like do what he what he tells them to and, and acquiesce, then the challenge is over, and he goes on to something else, and and we know that in the the last chapter of this book and it's it's a it's a chapter of one and a half pages but we kind of get the post movie credits of of what happens to Douglas's life after he leaves Peckham Rye and, and it's it's quite a fantastical and eventful life that he leads as you said this is the last chapter this kind of conf it confirms what ultimately happens between Humphrey and Dixie but in terms of what happens with Dougal uh, much could be told of Douglas' subsequent life. He returned from Africa and became a... Prior to this, he um, when he left, he went to Africa and began selling um, tape recorders to witch doctors. No medicine man, <laughs> Douglas said, these days can afford to be without a portable tape recorder. Without the aid of this modern device, which may be easily concealed in the undergrowth of the jungle, the old tribal authority will rapidly become undermined by the mounting influence of modern skepticism, which is... There's so much to say about that one line. But after that... After that, 
He returned from Africa and became a novice in a Franciscan monastery. So I guess this is the second mention of Catholicism in, in the novel. Um, before he was asked to leave, the prior had endured a nervous breakdown and several <laughs> of the monks had broken their vows of obedience in actuality and their other vows by desire. Dougal pleaded his powers as an exorcist in vain. Thereafter, for economy's sake, he gathered together the scrap ends of his profligate experience, for he was a frugal man at heart, and turned them into a lot of cockeyed books and went far in the world. He never married. Like, <laughs> hell, Muriel? Like, what a way to wrap it. But the, the other thing I wanted to say about this last chapter, the, and this is a thing she did earlier when reflecting on how people discuss the fight between Humphrey and Trevor after um, Humphrey returns and is turned away at the door initially by um, Dixie's mother. Um, and people talk about, oh, he's the one that stood her up at the altar. And oh, this one got the better of the fire. This happened and this happened. But it kind of throws back, she throws back in this idea of like how people talk and how narratives build and change and what the truth of the matter is or not. So she goes, some said Humphrey came back and married the girl in the end. Some said, no, he married another girl. Others said it was like this. Dixie died of a broken heart and he never looked another girl again. Some thought he had returned and she had slammed the door in his face and called him a dirty swine, which he was. One or two recalled there had been a fight between Humphrey and Trevor Lomas. But at all events, everyone remembered how a man had answered no at his wedding. In fact, they got married two months later, et cetera, et cetera. The final paragraph paints this image of Peckham, Peckham Rye, um, which is this massive park, right? You know, in, in Peckham leading up to the river. Up to this point, it feels like a, a, an industrial town, right? Like it feels like gray skies and it feels like houses on top of each other and not a lot of greenery, except in maybe some small parts. It feels just, you know, it feels very urban and industrial. But the final, par the final paragraph, it was a sunny day for November. And as he drove swif swiftly past the rye, he saw the children playing there and the women coming home from work with their shopping bags. The rye for an instant looking like a cloud of green and gold, the people seeming to ride upon it, as you might say, there was another world in this. And so it just changes to this what like technicolor dreamscape like dorothy winding up in oz like it's it's a really she's doing a lot of interesting things in here and it is a such a dialogue driven novel but when she decides to to flex her descriptions uh, as it were it's I mean, it becomes almost as much of a dance as anything that Dougal Douglas is doing i think throughout throughout the novel. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right about the the ballad aspect um that bookends this short novel with Humphrey saying, "No to be frank, I will not marry Dixie." And then you get some say this happened, some say that happened, some people don't remember anything, blah blah blah. You have that in the beginning and then you have that at the end too. So it is kind of like this this oral storytelling almost and like the unreliability of things as they're happening in the present in terms of what the hell is really going on. But then over time, it even becomes even more murky about <laughs> what was going on with all of these characters. It's just, it's just a really fun, fun book. For a 140 page novel, I feel like we could spend another hour or two digging into it. And this is this is the magic I think of of Muriel Spark. She she is in total control. She knows what she's doing, and she's delivering a banger every single time, and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. it was fun, Tom.
this is fun. Uh, next up, we have the Bachelors, um, and we are get, edging ever closer to the uh, the prime, the prime of Miss Jean Brody. But next next time, uh, next Muriel Spark episode will be the Bachelors, and uh, I'll talk to you next week, Laurie. Looking forward to it. 